Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing outstanding, Pete. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing good. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you on a topic that is important to everyone, which is Cutibacterium acnes. And to give us the latest, I've invited on two national experts. The first from the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia, we have Serena Nimdari. Serena, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Rachel, thanks for having me. And then next, we're to Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, you have Gabe Horniff. Gabe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete and Rachel, for doing this. This podcast has been really good. Well, first, I want to thank you both for coming on to discuss this topic. I know this isn't anyone's favorite, but it's super important for all of this because no matter how great of a surgeon you are, infections can always occur. Just so our listeners understand, these two experts certainly have lower than average infection rates, but they've done a great job of researching this subject. Um, so let's start at the beginning with an understanding of the importance of this bacteria. So, Gabe, what, fill us in on the basics. Why is this bacteria important for us? So um, the basics of, of what we now consider C. acnes, which used to be formerly known as P. acnes, is that it's a bacteria that's a, a gram-positive rod um, that tends to live in the, the pilosebaceous glands. Um, of which there's a, a higher concentration uh, around the shoulder axilla region, especially in, in male patients, uh, just because of the amount of hair follicles. And so the, the problem that we have as shoulder surgeons is obviously we're operating in an area where there's a high concentration of this bacteria. And then I think what becomes a problem for us from an infection standpoint is that it's not a typical infection um, that is easily recognized or easily treatable. Uh, and it tends to be one of these things that lingers on. Um, and so we have a really difficult time understanding how to approach it. Anything else you'd add, Serena? What, what, what else do we need to know kind of a fundamental before we get started talking through the details? Yeah, I mean, I think Gabe uh, summarized that uh, perfectly. I think, you know, one of the, the main issues is that we have a really hard time getting rid of it. You know, typically we think about surgery as sterile, but certainly it's not. And um, because it lives in that deeper layer of the skin, once we incise the skin, it um, will be exposed into the wound and it can penetrate the deep layers. And so, you know, it's something that's ubiquitous during surgery. And so because of that, we have to figure out how to deal with it in both primary cases and in revision surgery. Let's ask you both prevention, because ideally we wouldn't deal with this at all if we could prevent it. So what are you both doing for prep? Let's take it through. If you do anything special in the pre-op holding area, what you do in the operating room, do you shave? If so, when, and then what kind of prep substances are you using? Serena, let's start with you. Um, so we do um, wipes in the, in the preoperative holding area, um, dial antibacterial soap at home uh, three nights before surgery. Um, we shave the skin on top of the shoulder. We do not routinely shave the axilla. Um, and then in the operating room, uh, patients get their perioperative antibiotics. It's really important that they get that an hour before surgery um, or an hour before skin incision. And we try to time it so it's as close to skin incision as possible. Um, we try to give ANSEF whenever possible, possible because there's some literature to support that over some of the other um, uh, antibiotics. And then we use IBAN or some sort of iodine-based um, uh, dressing to um, seal off the skin. 
Um, and uh, prior to, uh, during the prep, we use both um, chlorhexidine um, as well as hydrogen peroxide, and then also um, a chloroprep type of um, uh, prep before um, incision. And so those are kind of the steps that we take. The hydrogen peroxide we do based on a study that we did and some data that Peter and, and Bob uh, Tashian have um, presented previously. Gabe, how about you? Anything different? Anything this exact same? Uh, I would say pretty much everything Serena mentioned is ideal for our patient population as well. Um, typically using ANSTEF, I think the Mayo group has really shown that that really is the antibiotic of choice, even though it tends to be the joke. It's the only antibiotic we know as orthopedic surgeons. But um, And even in the instance of patients who, you know, quote unquote, have a, an allergy to it, it still ends up being the best. Um, I have started adding the hydrogen peroxide, thanks to the work of Serena and, and Pete's groups, uh, respectively. Um, I think the, the biggest point of that is that it, it's a cheap alternative. Um, I think, you know, as we dive into this conversation a little bit more, we're, we're trying to find out other ways to reduce the, the colonization, but a lot of those things can end up being expensive or timely. Uh, hydrogen peroxide is a nice, uh, cheap alternative to do that that doesn't have to be something where the patients have to be responsible for applying it well in advance. But yeah, otherwise it's it's pretty standard. Um, the only other thing I would kind of throw into, um, I consider this sort of part of the prep is that, you know, uh, using the first blade um, for skin incision and then immediately changing that blade to something else, I consider that part of the prep um, as, as the very beginning of the surgery, but otherwise everything else is the same. I want to follow up. So it sounds like we're kind of hinting around benzoyl peroxide here. You know, I, there's some literature that Mohit Galatra has given us to show that benzoyl peroxide is effective, but it has to be given for several days ahead of time. It sounds like neither of you are doing that currently. Tell me about that. Is that mostly because of the challenge logistically of getting that to the patients? Is that because of reactions you've had? Is that because you feel like the hydrogen peroxide is equally effective? What do you, what do you think, Gabe? Yeah, I would say that probably the fact that you have to have the patients apply it themselves, usually three days in advance. You know, Mohit Galotra's group obviously won the NEAR award showing how effective it can be. Um, and there's been some more, you know, recent studies looking at the use of benzoyl peroxide and, and as well as with uh, in combination of topical, you know, clindamycin. And it, they all are effective. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, asking a patient to be compliant with that you know, I have found that both in the pre and post-operative care of my patients, trying to keep things at a minimum for them um, reduces the chance of, of them doing anything to potentially harm themselves or, or run the risk of an infection, you know, even as much as we, we don't tell our patients to shave themselves before they get to the, the pre-op holding, you know, we take care of all of that. So um, I think it's really just a matter of trying to keep it as simple as possible for the patient. And what, what about you, Serena? Do you have similar reasons? Is it just that because it's such, such a logistical challenge for patients or have you had problems with it? No, I haven't had problems. I do think that the literature is, is pretty clear that benzoyl peroxide works better um, than hydrogen peroxide in terms of actually lowering the um, skin colonization of C. acnes during surgery. But, um, but at the same time, I think the, the compliance issue that Gabe mentioned is a, is a real one. So I will occasionally use it if I have that patient that I consider to be really high risk. You know, the young male uh, patient maybe on testosterone who's, you know, got a, a kind of acne all, already on their back. You know, that kind of patient, I will still consider using it. But for my routine 
um, arthroplasty patient, I, I, I don't, um, because honestly, it just takes a lot of time to, um, to, um, order and to ensure that they're using it correctly. And I'm not sure at the end of the day that it, um, adds that much in terms of lowering the, the risk of true infection. So Serena, I mean, you mentioned the young male patient, maybe the patient on testosterone supplementation. What are, are those the main risk factors? Are there other risk factors for this particular bacteria that you're worried about? Yeah, I think, you know, um, it's a lot of authors have shown this, the, the group out of University of Washington with Rick Matson and Jason Shu have done a, done a lot of this work. But I think the, the patients that are most at risk for C. acnes are going to be that, that young male population. And, you know, the, they clearly have a higher bacterial burden of C. acnes on and in the dermal layer of the skin. So as a result, when you do their operations, they're going to have an increased risk that the deeper layers become inoculated with um, the bacteria. And so once those deeper layers are, are inoculated, then the question becomes what happens to those bacteria? And it's, it's really one of several things. Either those bacteria will die and it'll be inconsequential. Um, those bacteria may remain just colonizers that are deep but inactive and not causing um, uh, clinical problems or it can lead to infection. And so, you know, I feel like the more bacteria you have on the skin surface, the higher the likelihood that you're going to develop clinically significant deep infection. What about you, Gabe? I mean, I, I think we've heard some mention about, you know, the age, the gender, or I guess I should say the sex. I mean, I, we've heard some mention maybe about acne and the shoulder. When they teach you a patient has a lot of acne on their face, do you worry? What are the, what are the risk factors you worry about for this particular bacteria? Yeah, well, I think a lot of what we understand about uh, C. acnes actually comes from the dermatology literature. Um, there's been, you know, different um, medications, whether it's antibiotic or different preparations to try to treat facial acne and like acne vulgaris. Um, and so I think all of those risk factors uh, that Serena had mentioned, obviously, are a concern. Um, you know, the other thing that we looked at uh, and had a couple presentations of was looking at some light therapy to try to treat this. Uh, as well, um, using basically a metabolite that normally is kind of um, taken in by the, the C. acnes bacteria and then sort of exposing that to a, a certain frequency of light, which causes an exothermic reaction and can cause it to lyse the bacteria. Unfortunately, they're, especially around a surgical incision, becomes concerned for reaction to the skin locally to that. And so, you know, even though we did a study, we were a little bit concerned about the reaction and weren't really seeing much of a difference. You know, I think the biggest thing that we run into is that right now our, our focus is so much on prevention because, you know, we quote this, this rate of infection around 1%. So it's not a lot and it'd be really hard to do some sort of trial following all these infection patients out. So the thought is, can we prevent it? But we just really haven't figured out a good way to, to do it. Peter, I think one of the, you know, issues is that we diagnose infection very strongly based on our culture results. You know, like Gabe mentioned early on, C. acnes does not typically present with the, you know, systemic signs of infection or even the local signs of infection with purulence. And so we re rely very heavily on our cultures. And so those young male patients are going to be more likely to have deep positive cultures because they're also more likely to have positive skin swabs and positive dermal cultures. So you know, it's it, it's true that we we diagnose infection more commonly 
in young male patients, but that can also be a function of the fact that we're relying so heavily on our culture results. Yeah, and I think that's a huge point because, you know, everybody on this phone call who works in healthcare, I'm sure if we, you know, swabbed our noses, we all have some sort of strain of MRSA uh, inside our body just because, you know, we work in a healthcare setting. Uh, and obviously, we, a lot of times we, we swab our patients for that as well. But clearly, we're not having some sort of infection. And the question then also becomes, you know, is it an infection if your body's not really having a reaction to it, right? So people can be colonized in their urinary tract and their GI tract with all sorts of bacteria that really isn't causing any sort of host response. And we just kind of say, okay, well, you're colonized, but it's not a big deal. It really becomes tricky with these C. acne infections where even the quote-unquote infection isn't some fulminant thing that's, you know, pouring out pus or making the shoulder red and hot. So it really is tricky. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a hugely important point, and I, don't, I, I think this is really the crux of the issue with the bacteria is if we, if we find a positive culture, is that positive culture found because the patient has an infection, or is it a contaminant, or is it found because the patient is colonized with this bacteria? So I, mean, I, I think that this is the question that if, if I could put it at the heart of this issue that I want to ask both of you is, when someone comes back with a positive culture, how do you know that it's real? What, what, what aspects of the culture are you using? What aspects? Is it all based on the concomitant clinical situation? Are you running special tests on the bacteria? You know, are there other factors? What are, what are the factors you're using, Gabe, to try and, to try and tease this out? Because I find this so hard. Yeah, it's, it's, as I mentioned before, it's really tricky, you know, especially in orthopedics and in medicine, we like to group things together. So we like to say that, you know, if all patients show up with symptom Y, then, you know, their treatment should be X. Um, and the problem is, is, I think with C. acnes and so much of it, you know, the, the markers that we depend on for normal infections not becoming positive and the patients come in with these sort of questionable complaints, you know, oh, it's a little bit stiff, it's a little bit painful you know, you really start to stare at your x-rays and you start to wonder, you know, I don't know, is it slightly overstuffed? Am I overanalyzing the x-ray? It looked pretty good at my first post-op. And so I find that with each one of these patients, you know, I tend to order the same labs that we would for any sort of infection. Not that I necessarily think it's going to show me something, but definitely to rule out something worse. Um, and then I really treat it on an individual basis, kind of based on, you know, the patient, you know, who they are, What's their gender? What's their age group? Do they have the risk factors for C. acnes? You know, what has been their chief complaint? How long have they been dealing with this from their, you know, index of their surgery? Um, and I, you know, if I get cultures that come back positive, I'll take five cultures. And, you know, I tend to say if there's a majority of cultures that come back positive, then I will treat them with some sort of antibiotics. But I, I have to say that I find it to be much more of an individualized approach than I would say, approaching someone with a certain size rotator cuff tear or a certain defect of the glenoid on a, a primary arthroplasty. I want to follow up on this a little bit more. And certainly, let me ask you, I think nowadays, you know, people, residents in particular, they're trained for painful shoulder, but also other joints now post-op. If you're going to aspirate or, or even go to the OR to take a tissue biopsy, et cetera, hold the cultures for three weeks, you know, hold them and see what grows. And then if you get C. acnes, um, you know, treat it as appropriate. 
And I think a lot of times we see painful, unfortunately, and maybe it's just more in my practice, but we see patients who continue to have some pain after their surgery, be it a cuff repair, an arthroplasty, and, and we can't objectively find a reason why their components look good or, or the MRI looks good if it's a cuff or whatever it might be. And so we ultimately, we get some labs and we know that this is pretty indolent. So we don't see, you know, really striking abnormal labs. And then ultimately we get an aspiration or a tissue biopsy. And lo and behold, we have, we have bacteria. Do we blame the painful post-op shoulder on that? Or like Pete says, is this just a contaminant that happens to be there? Yeah, it's a, I think that's that's kind of the crux of the question. You know, I think what we know is that um, positive preoperative aspirations have a very high positive predictive value for getting that bacteria um, again cultured when you take tissue during surgery. Um, positive from pre-revision. Uh, biopsy, um, arthroscopic, similarly has a very high positive predictive value that you'll again get those bacteria. But then like you point out, the question becomes, are those bacteria actually the source of the problem? And so, you know, there is, you know, th there's ways that you can evaluate those bacteria. Those methods are not available at every institution. You know, the group at University of Washington, the group in Buffalo, they, they try to evaluate whether the, the C. acnes are hemolytic or not. Um, that may lead to testing that's more available at other institutions. Um, there, um, as, a, as a result right now, I think what most people can do at any institution is you can look at the time to positive culture. So if your cultures are flipping positive at 14 days, then that has a higher chance of not being um, a clinically, you know, significant bacteria. Um, we don't we don't hold for three weeks. We we hold for 14 days. But you know, there's been there's data from Joe Ainati and others that if you're getting positive cultures that flip after eight days or so, they're likely not clinically significant. So you can look at time to positivity, and then you can look at semi-quantitative scoring. So depending on how the cultures are read, they'll read them as um, you know, broth only growth, very rare growth, rare growth, um, medium growth, or, you know, moderate growth or high growth. And so you can use that information clinically. If you have five cultures and four of them are, um, uh, you know, heavy growth of C. acnes, then, and they're flip positive at four days, I mean, you can feel pretty confident that that's real. But if you have, you know, two cultures positive out of five, they flip at 13 days and it's broth only growth then that's a, a, a case where you may choose not to treat that patient aggressively. All right, let me ask you guys about some other things, pearls that you may do for prevention. We're going to get into treatment in a little bit, but for prevention, is there anything else intraoperatively or postoperatively that either of you do to help prevent infection? We're talking, do you do special irrigation washes, betadine washes? Is there any sort of special dressing that you use that's, you know, marketed to be low, low for bacterial or, or viral growth? Do you give any extra antibiotics, either IV if they're staying overnight, or even if they're going home, do you give an extra dose of IV ANCEF um, in the PACU? Do you give oral antibiotics for home? And if so, which ones and for how long? Gabe, let's start with you. Any any pearls that you do to try to, you know, routinely for, for say, primary patients with, with baseline risk factors? Yeah. So, um, again, I think 
for my standard, you know, elderly female patient who doesn't have the risk factors, I wouldn't really do anything necessarily special. Um, but for the patient who is more, you know, fitting the category of someone you're worried about, um, I do, uh, if it's an arthroplasty case, I will um, put vancomycin powder in the wound. Um, not that I necessarily feel that that helps with sea acne, but I, does, I do think the evidence shows it helps with infection overall. Um, I will wash out with anywhere between three to six liters. I don't typically do a betadine wash. Um, I do use the betadine, you know, uh, impregnated ioban for all my, my cases, unless there's, you know, a, a risk for allergy. Um, if it's a revision case um, and there's low concern for infection, meaning the cultures don't necessarily come back positive, all my revision cases I will put on two weeks of oral antibiotics, um, uh, usually doxycycline or, or some sort of equivalent, um, just to prevent any chance of infection. But um, beyond that, I don't think there's really anything special other than, you know, the the, the wound coverage that I use is what I learned from Serena, uh, what he brought over from, from Wash U. Um, I, you know, I keep uh, a multi-layered closure, uh, absorbable suture, uh, use dermal glue, clear tegaderm dressing, waterproof, try to make it as minimally uh, bothersome for the patient so that they don't have to do anything with it. And I think that just increases the chance of, of compliance and doesn't, you know, put them at any risk of potentially contaminating their incision by doing dressing changes or fussing around with it. Serena, how about you? Anything different, anything additional or exactly the same? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of the main factors that is in our control when we do um, surgery is the speed at which we do the operation um, and the efficiency with which we get through the case. So, you know, we know we know the the Jason Shoes group has shown that um, the amount of siacnes is essentially half its pre prep level within an hour of surgery. So. You know, the faster we move during an operation and the most more efficiently we move during surgery, we lower the um, the amount of bacteria that are in our wound. Um, I do believe that as soon as we make skin incision, we kind of populate the uh, field with siacnes. Uh, and so I do use a betadine um, solution. Um, and there is some data that out of Switzerland that shows that if you um, use a betadine solution after skin incision that you have a lower uh, deep positive culture rate. Um, and I irrigate every case, um, primary cases, with a full three liters of uh, saline. So, you know, the um, solution to pollution is dilution. I, I, I use vank powder only in what I would consider to be high-risk cases, revision cases, immunocompromised patients. And I try to minimize... Um, uh, you know, the antibiotics. So I don't give patients routinely, you know, extended courses of antibiotics. Um, I don't put antibiotics in the irrigation solution. I do worry about antimicrobial resistance. I do worry about altering the microbiome. You know, one of the things that we know in the shoulder is that we actually have low rates of MRSA infection in the shoulder and staph infection. And there is some in vitro data that some of that may be related to a protective um, factors related to siacnes, you know, that prevent the overgrowth of more aggressive microorganisms. So I do worry a little bit about altering the kind of normal habitat of the shoulder with, um, with antibiotics. So those are phenomenal prevention trips. Let's talk about, you know, we've, we've hinted a little bit about the difficulty in diagnosis. Let's talk about the painful arthroplasty. So you have a patient in your clinic, 
This is the patient, Gabe, you're talking about where you're scrutinizing the x-rays. You know, you think the x-rays look okay. How are you evaluating that patient for C-acnes? What tests are you doing? Are you doing aspirations? Are you doing biopsies? Are you doing labs? Tell us, Serena, what's the, what is your workup for the painful arthroplasty to rule out C-acnes? So, um, I, I will try to aspirate that patient um, just because I, I know that commonly it's going to be negative or dry. Um, but when it's positive, that has a high positive predictive value. So I think that's important information in that under 20% chance that it's positive. Um, I will obtain standard infection labs, ESR, CRP, um, white blood cell count. Um, we studied D-dimer as another test. It does not seem to have that much value. We tried to look at platelet-derived factors um, in serum. does not seem to have much value. So I still just get the routine um, preoperative infection labs. Um, and then I will consider a, um, an arthroscopic biopsy in the setting where I really don't know what's going on. So that would be the case where I feel like the implants are well fixed and not oversized. There's no clear mechanical source, um, for, um, failure. And so that's the case that I'll, that I'll do a scope biopsy um, or the patient who I think that if I have a positive culture or positive cultures preoperatively, it might alter what I actually end up doing, whether that be um, a two-stage because I may want to do a large bone graft or something else. So the, the two times that I'll scope are if I really don't know what's going on and everything looks well fixed or if I think it'll alter my decision for a two-stage versus a single stage. What about you, Gabe? Anything else you'd add to that? I'd inter I noticed interesting. There's no alpha defensin in there. There's no send out tests. Are you are you doing anything in addition to that? No. So I, I agree wholeheartedly with with Serena. Uh, and my um, threshold to do an, an arthroscopic biopsy is, is very similar. Uh, and again, it becomes that patient who's a head scratcher. Um, I think you know, obviously, Serena and his group has done a lot looking at these other markers. Um, you know, uh, leukocyte esterase and the synovial fluid, you know, it, it's not great. Uh, the sensitivity is kind of low. Uh, specificity is fine, but, um, you know, it doesn't make it a great test. The alpha defensin, I think he's also looked at, um, which has been a little bit better, but even still, it's much more specific than it is sensitive. So it's sort of a rule out test that makes it difficult. And I think the key to, to understanding that for the audience is, is really goes back to this idea that you know, a lot of these markers that we use for normal infection are based on the host response. And so if you're not really getting that host response from the immune system, then, you know, these markers are all going to be relatively low because your body's not reacting to it. Um, you know, obviously, I defer to, to Serena to talk about sort of the, the next-gen sequencing, which he's done a lot with. Um, but I think even that, the, the water is sort of muddy. And, and you know, obviously that's a, a thing where it's specific to your institution. I don't personally do any of that, but I know Serena's group has, has looked into that. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. But again, you know, we rely so much on cultures, which in the terms of looking at infection is probably antiquated. Um, you know, it was one of the first things we ever did looking for infection in medicine. And it still, unfortunately, tends to be the only thing we rely on with C-acnes. All right, guys, let's ask you about something that makes us all cringe and um, hypothetically speaking, because I know you've never had one of these, but let's say just hypothetically speaking that you have a chronically infected prosthesis, a reverse, an anatomic 
what are you doing? How are you handling this? Um, it's chronic. They're not acutely sick. Are we doing a single stage revision, a staged revision? Serna, let's start with you. So I, th I think it, for me, it depends on the clinical presentation. So if somebody is presenting, and sometimes Siacnes will present more aggressively than we're taught, especially in the chronic situation, you will see occasionally a sinus track, you will sometimes see purulence. And so if I see things like sinus track or purulence, um, then for me, that's a two-stage revision regardless of the organism. So that's an explantation, debridement, antibiotic spacer, treat for six weeks with um, antibiotics, antibiotic holiday for another six weeks, and then come back. If it's, in, in, it's somebody that I have suspicion for infection, but there is not significant clinical signs, there's no redness, there's no drainage, there's no purulence, then, then most of those cases for me are a single stage revision, again, with a, with a thorough debridement, mechanical debridement and extensive irrigation with a lot of the um, things that we talked about in terms of preventing infection and then a single stage. Gabe, how about you? Anything different or exactly the same? I agree. I, and, you know, if it's if it looks grossly infected on patient presentation, um, even if I know it's it's C acnes from from cultures, I'm going to still treat it as if it was something like MRSA and, and really do a full two stage. Um, otherwise, you know, I think Madsen's group and, and others have shown that there's a lot of morbidity um, with two stage um, surgery. Uh, there's also uh, really, you know, the outcomes have been pretty good for single stage um, revision surgery in the setting of you know not a, a gross infection. And so I would agree that, you know, trying to give the patient one surgery um, to get them through it is fine. The only other argument I would make is that, you know, if it was a patient where I wasn't necessarily worried about gross infection, but at the time of surgery due to removal of hardware or whatnot, you know, I'm left with a little less bone, I might just go ahead and do a spacer just to help myself get uh, a new CT scan when it comes time to consider what I'm going to do for the revision. But otherwise, I have to agree with Serena. I think, you know, there's a lot of morbidity with two-stage. Uh, and if you can avoid it, and look, even if they end up, you know, having a recurrence of a, a, a you know, a very quiet C. acnes infection, you can follow that over time and, and maybe buy them a few more years rather than taking them through two surgeries. And, and who knows, you know, maybe they'll outlive before that, that second, quote-unquote, C. acnes infection becomes a problem for them. I think it's a little bit difficult in the literature to reconcile single stage and two stage because, you know, it's not apples to apples. You know, when we look at the literature, the two stage literature is mainly um, looking at cases that are, you know, obvious clinical presentation of infection. The single stage literature is mostly indolent um, bacteria that maybe either unexpected positive cultures or um, they didn't really, you know, necessarily. Um, know definitively that they were infected prior to surgery, and most of those are C-acnes or coag-negative staph. And so we know that both of those have, um, in the literature, over 90% of it, um, infection eradication. Uh, but the problem is that all we can say is that a two-stage revision for virulent infection seems to be equivalent to a single-stage revision for indolent infection. And so that's kind of how I look at it when I when I think about treatment. I think um, we may end up with problems if you start extrapolating um, that data to say that you can treat virulent infection with single stage. 
Certainly, it's interesting to hear the shift. You know, I think 10 years ago, everyone was doing two stages all the time. And certainly there's been some shift in that, which I mean, I could not agree more that the two stage can be a pretty morbid process for the patient. Let's talk about let's move on from arthroplasty and talk about failed cuff cases. So this is this is an area I think things if, if, if you as a listener thought things could not get murkier, things get even murkier. So let's say, Serena, I mean, you do you do a rotator cuff repair. You're happy with it. It fails. The patient comes back. You're thinking about doing a revision. Or maybe you're thinking about doing a lower trap transfer. Maybe you're thinking about doing a patch. You're thinking about doing something else. Do you think, is there a role for cultures in this patient at the time of revision? Is there a role for cultures before you go to revision? Are there situations in which you start to think about them in that in that setting or no? It depends on if I did the original surgery or not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the um, I think that for me, it depends on what the imaging looks like. If the MRI shows um, lysis or um, signs of anchor loosening or signs, it changes in the bone that concern me for osteomyelitis, then um, or, or strange complex fluid collection then I will um, send cultures. Um, if the x-rays show any signs of lysis in the tuberosity, then, I'm, then, I'll, then I'll send cultures. But, you know, we realize that our sutures are colonized um, when we do our cuff repairs. You know, that's, the, that's been shown multiple times. And so I don't go chasing after it in those particular situations because, you know, even when I'm, when I'm revising a cuff, I mean, we're doing it arthroscopically. We're fun, we're pumping a lot of fluid through the shoulder, especially in a revision situation. So, you know, I don't I don't go chasing after siacnes generally in revision cuff situations unless there's something um, radiographically that that points me in that direction. What about you, Gabe? And maybe you could also add. Let's pretend there's a prior cuff repair, and now you're thinking about doing a reverse. Is that a situation where you start to get more nervous? Should I be taking cultures at the time of my primary in case there is some bacteria hiding on those cultures, on those sutures? Yeah, so, you know, for a revision cuff surgery, um, I agree, unless something shows up on imaging like MRI that looks grossly infected, I'm probably not going to make too much of a big deal out of it. Um, I think the thing that I still struggle with, and actually I posed the question to, to you guys as well uh, after you know I finished giving my answer, but you know now that we have all these new available allografts uh, in our possession uh, that we tend to use more often in revision surgeries, you know even though I might not necessarily do anything for a revision cuff repair, the idea of putting in a, a piece of allograft or you know, uh, another large piece of foreign material that can certainly harbor uh, the chance of more infection. I do struggle with that sometimes as to whether I should continue to do that. In terms of converting somebody with a failed cuff to a reverse, I think in those instances, uh, like I mentioned before, I, I will um, definitely put them on antibiotics uh, following that procedure. If, uh, if you know, C. acnes at the time of, of culture come back positive, I don't know if I would necessarily do anything different. Like I'm not going to put in a spacer and then go ahead and put in a reverse. I think I would convert them to a reverse, but I would do all the tricks that we talked about in part of our prep. I probably would put the you know um, patient on oral antibiotics for two weeks after and, and watch them closely. But again, I mean, you know, I find that we're probably going to leave this this series of this podcast today with with more questions and answers, and it's not because we 
are not knowing what we're talking about in terms of not knowing the literature. I think we just don't know in, in terms of we haven't answered the questions that we want as a as a collective society yet. Something I'd love to ask both of you guys, do, do you have patients where they're just on antibiotics forever? Like that you, you just cannot get rid of this infection. Um, they're not sick, but their shoulder's not perfect. And you've done a revision, maybe you've done two revisions, you've done a spacer, and this just continues to happen. And you just say enough is enough. You're going to be on antibiotics forever. Is there ever a patient like that? Serena, how about you? I definitely do. Um, I can't say they, there are a lot of them, but I definitely have patients who have chronic, um, typically indolent um, infections, sometimes even with a sinus tract that intermittently will drain um, when they come off of their antibiotics and then they'll go back on their antibiotics and the sinus will close. And in general, those patients are people who are um, kind of infirm um, or, you know, they're not, they're not, um, appropriate for surgery or they have very well fixed, um, cemented, you know, long stem implants that would be an absolute nightmare with incredible morbidity to take out. And so, you know, those are people that we, in cons in conjunction with infectious disease, we've decided to, to treat with suppressive antibiotics. And so there are patients like that. There aren't many of them. Uh, but they they certainly do exist, and I think it does have a role. Gabe, same for your practice? Yeah, I, I definitely have a few. Um, fortunately, it's not a lot unless they're going to see Serena and he's not telling me about them. But, um, yeah, I, you know, I also have a couple patients, honestly, in, in the elbow world as well um, who, you know, we're just basically suppressing. And I think one of the most important things is, is with these patients, um, getting your infectious disease colleagues on board you know, they don't get too excited about it. Uh, I guess within the world of infectious disease, it's not as, as exciting uh, for them, but I definitely have them to continue to follow up with the patient. I'm happy to send them, you know, notes and emails just asking their thoughts. And, you know, we, we do have a handful of people that they just say keep on lifetime suppression and, and they do fine. Well, certainly not the goal, but, um, you know, I, I totally agree with Serena. There are some situations in which taking a pill once or twice a day for the rest of your life may be less morbid than what you would have to do to remove some components that are completely well fixed and fully cemented. You know, this is an area that I think hopefully the listeners are hearing is rapidly changing. I mean, there's a lot that's changed even in the last five years about the way we understand and diagnose and treat these infections. What do you think the future holds from here? You know, if you had to get out your crystal ball, Gabe, where and if we do this again in five years, what are, what are we going to say has changed? So I think um, prevention is still going to be the goal um, for our group uh, to, to try to, to end up treating this. You know, the idea of an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, infection rates, fortunately, for, for shoulder surgery are, are relatively low. Um, and I think just doing whatever we can do, like we've done with just the whole sterilization process and how we approach surgery in general to try to reduce infection will continue to evolve. Um, whether that's, you know, a different antibiotic, a different chemical topical, uh, you know, light therapy, who knows? Um, but I think that's the focus. I also, and I think you can kind of sense this when you come to our society meetings and everything is even in my short time in practice, I feel like the, the fervor behind 
oh, see acne, see acne, we got to treat it. We got, it's starting to die down. And I, I don't want to say that we're collectively just shrugging our shoulders, but I'm starting to think that we realize, you know, this is something that's sort of ubiquitous. Um, a lot of patients can, can do okay with it. Um, and, you know, maybe we're, we're being a little too aggressive to treating it and perhaps we need to sort of just kind of back down and, and realize that it's there. Um, you know, I know for some people that, that doesn't necessarily feel comfortable or sit well, especially when you start talking about the medical legal world and saying, well, there's, there's something colonized in there, but you're not doing anything about it. But, um, I wouldn't be surprised that if in another five years, this is something where we really don't even kind of raise an eyebrow to it. What do you think, Serena? Um, I think there are, there are two things that I think about um, when I look to the future of, of C, understanding C acnes. And I think the first is something that we talked about early on in this podcast, which is which bacteria matter, which are clinically relevant or significant. And I think that that, you know, right now we're looking at just positive negative cultures. It's, it's a very archaic way. Um, to diagnose infection. I think as we become better with de developing and understanding molecular techniques, DNA-based or RNA-based techniques to identify bacteria and their subtypes, and then understanding what those subtypes mean in terms of how pathologic they are, I think that will go a long way in determining which C. acnes matter and which ones maybe don't matter. And then I think the second is um, equally important and um, somewhat ignored right now, and that's the host. You know, we all can understand that there are some patients who um, can get inoculated with a bacteria and develop no systemic response to it. They don't get sick. There are others that can get inoculated with the bacteria and they can have fulminant aggressive infection. And so we don't have a good understanding of why some hosts react to bacteria or specific bacteria in a certain way that uh, leads to pathology, whereas others, they kind of, it, it becomes part of their, their normal. So I think understanding the host will also be um, a huge part of kind of understanding this problem. I want to thank you both for coming on. I mean, this is, again, a difficult topic to discuss, and it's, it's hugely valuable to hear from both of you what you're doing now and what you think is going to change. So I, um, I really appreciate both of your time. This has been great. Um, you guys were awesome. Thanks, guys. This was great. I appreciate it. Thanks for everything you guys do for the ASCS. This podcast is terrific, and it really keeps me occupied during my commutes. Yeah, thank you both very much for having me, uh, Serena. Thanks uh, for doing this with me as well. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. This this is one of the best podcasts for what we do as shoulder and elbow surgeons. And you know, kudos to to both of you for getting some, um, although maybe not maybe not today in myself, but getting some heavy hitters to discuss this, uh, these topics and to really kind of shed some light on, on how our uh, field is evolving. I'll echo Pete and thank both of you so much. Both of you are heavy hitters and, and that's exactly why you're on here. And, and again, we, we want to thank you for coming on to talk about probably a not so fun topic, um, but something that's absolutely necessary because like so many things in shoulder surgery and elbow surgery, if, if you haven't seen it, it has certainly seen you. And I think we can all say that for shoulder infections. That is all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank our guests so much for coming in to talk about this difficult topic, very educational and very helpful. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.